Welcome to episode two of the House Builders podcast in association with Close Brothers Property Finance and Showhouse Magazine. Episode two is entitled Encouraging SMEs and the Next Generation. My name is Rupert Bates, Editorial Director of Showhouse Magazine and Whathouse.com. Our panellists today are Daniel Joyce. Dan has been at Close Brothers Property Finance since 2000. Our second Daniel is Daniel Norman. Daniel is the founder and CEO of Apreo, a successful online platform that creates and manages development appraisals for house builders. Jonathan Kitching from Briar Hayes Village Homes. Jonathan is a skilled groundworker, project manager and house builder who joins us today all the way from North Yorkshire. And finally, Charles Worthington. Charles is a director of Loudoun Construction, where he started as a labourer back in 2003 at the age of just 18. Charles is now involved in all aspects of the Loudoun business at a strategic level, including the management of all developments. So welcome, gentlemen. It's great to see you all. As we say, this is all about next gen. I probably don't qualify as next gen. I think I'm old gen. But uh, it's, it's great, great to see and interact with um, some great new talents in the house building industry, which is much needed. I think to kick off um, in terms of that next generation and the fact that we need to do all we can to um, encourage more SMEs, more people into the industry, that we maybe need to start with um, your guys' uh, backgrounds, how you got into house building and how easy it was or difficult it was, uh, whether it's driven by family rather than a desire necessarily to get into the industry. So perhaps we could kick off, uh, Jonathan, just a little bit about um, how and why you got in the industry and, and, and what were the, the opportunities and the pitfalls when you first went in? Uh, yes, thank you. Well, it's a family business that we have. So um, we're generations of builders. My father started building new, home, new homes about 30 years ago. So in a way, I always worked for him as a teenager in the school holidays and things like that. So it was a fairly easy transition for me into the business really. I did all my education, I did the GCSEs, A-levels and, and university degree, but always I'd be working for my father. So I'd work on site with all the different trades to pick up all the aspects of it. So I sort of learned how to build houses without really knowing I was learning it, I suppose. Excellent. Um, and Charles, what was your journey? I mean, you start at the age of 18. I mean, most people after a, a gap year from university, the last thing they want to do is be a labourer on a, on a cold building site. But is that, is that actually how it started? Did it, was it something you always wanted to do? Uh, no, it's, I mean, it's a similar story to Jonathan in that I fell into it somewhat. So after a gap year, I needed some cash and <laughs> always enjoyed, you know, elements of it. Labouring was always hard and a, a little bit tedious at times. But I, I went back and started working for my now business partner. When I finished university, I again went to work for him while I was thinking about what I wanted to do. So I, I, I kept labouring, loved what we were doing, um, sort of barn conversions and um, and eventually just said, well, you know, what do you need in terms of skill sets? Um, my business, now business partner said, you know, health and safety. So I started with that and sort of jack of all trades, definitely master of none. <laughs> no, excellent, Charles. And- Obviously, Daniel Norman, obviously not, not, not a house builder, but very much involved in the house building industry on the, on the tech side. And I know you have a, a sort of background in, in development finance. So are you a classic case of, was there an interest in the house building industry, but you thought, I'm not going on a coal building site. I'm going in the tech world and all I need is a laptop to conquer the industry. 
Um, there is a part of that. However, I actually started my career wanting to be a property developer. My father had been a property developer. Um, so I'd grown up around sites and, you know, some similar stories here, particularly to, to Jonathan. My first jobs in property were work experience for property developers where I, I moved around and kind of wanted to learn the ropes. I was in development finance for 10 years. And to be honest, it was in that point where I realized that there was actually a massive shortfall um, in the financial modeling side of things. And I realized that the adoption of technology and property was just so far behind every other sector. So I saw the opportunity at that point to create a prey to really help streamline the financial modeling for, for development. Um, and then left out four years ago and now um, built up a business where we've now got up to about three and a half thousand projects going through our software every single month. Excellent, excellent. And Dan Joyce, obviously Close Brothers Property Finance, always very much hugely supportive of SME developers and we've got great developers uh, you know, on the podcast today, but we need far more of them. How, how are we going to find them? Uh, thank you, Rupert. We, as as a bank, you know, we're always looking towards building a sustainable business. And as much as the urban myth suggests, you know, I'm still relatively young. You know, what we're doing here at the bank is that we're looking at how we can encourage the next generation to get into house building through a, a launch of a new a new forum, if you like, called Tomorrow's Developer. I'm very passionate about bringing on new talent to the business. And I think it's important that we assist the younger generation in breaking down the barriers to entry into uh, into the world of property development. We know that some of those barriers include finance, planning, etc. And whilst we won't necessarily be able to assist them on the finance side of things, what we can do and what we can bring to the table is our network and we can exchange that value with the next generation and hopefully point them in the right direction. Daniel, I was just going to say, I've got a quick question for you there, if you don't mind. (laughs) So one of the things that I've always noticed with property development is the barrier to entry is so high. So generally from a financial position, you know, you're looking at a minimum of hundreds of thousands of pounds of equity investment to go into projects. What as part of that initiative, what do you have in mind of, of essentially getting over that barrier to help somebody who is, you know, in their late 20s or 30s get into the development world? We've, we've started conversations already with the likes of Homes England around how we could perhaps close the gap on the equity piece, because as a bank, whilst we're happy to exchange value, ultimately, we have a lending policy and we, we want to stick to that, you know, the property finance team have been lending on property for over 45 years. And one of our key policies is dealing with experienced people. So it's bringing in partners like Homes England, if, if they can sort of find something that would fit with our product. And, then, and if that doesn't necessarily work, then, it, as I say, it's, it's pointing aspiring developers in the right direction. Um, and that could be perhaps mentoring alongside other developers. Yeah, I mean, because I mean, it's interesting, isn't it, that I think during COVID and the and the pandemic, there's been a wave of sort of startups in in other industries and entrepreneurs giving it a go, whether it's retail, fashion, technology. But the fact is, house building will always have these these massive barriers to entry. However, I don't have much tech you have, however, however much innovation you have, the fundamental issues of of finance, finding land, and starting up, and the issue of the catch twenty two, I suppose of you need experience to get to get the funding, but you might be a, you know a young entrepreneur who, who's got great ideas, great talents, but is sort of knocked down at the first hurdle. I don't know, sort of Jonathan, 
Charles, whether you know your experience of that in terms of the frustrations. As Daniel Norman said, it is, it is the biggest barrier, I think, isn't it? Is having that asset behind you or that capital behind you to, to sort of go it alone. But I also agree with um, Daniel Joyce on, on almost an apprenticeship or mentoring, really. I mean, again, if somebody's keen enough and wants to do it and wants to learn more, then even to bring someone sort of through our business to have somebody sort of help me out a bit with the day-to-days of it and that. And if they were interested to be able to teach them a little bit more about the sides, that sides of it. But you still kind of need the experience, I think, on site or within some role to do with development. Sorry, Jonathan, I was just going to ask, and maybe Charles, can the government perhaps do more um, on that side of things? Because it seems that, you know, we talk a lot about planning restrictions. We talk a lot about, you know, other barriers, but we've already touched on the fact that equity is probably one of the biggest barriers. So what do you think the government could do more? Yeah, I suppose it's the whole apprenticeship thing that we might touch on later. It's how they can how they can push that forward with it, really. But it'd be hard because it comes back to backing the person, doesn't it? Really, it's finding that right person. Because as you said, Dan, the your business, or whatever, it's who you who you lend to has to have that experience, and you have to be happy to be having a le- who you're lending to, really. And it would be hard for the government to sort of pick out that person and go, well, yeah, this is a future property developer. We we should back him with money because. It's, it's a lot of money to risk as well, isn't it, with it? It's, it's, it's kind of a high-risk game as well as a high-reward game. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest. I think it's a, tr- a tricky one. I, mean, I, I was lucky in that I, I essentially tethered myself to someone who had the experience, had the capital behind him. So, I mean, I, I built up my lumps of capital via a sort of profit share, and it started at the age of sort of 22, 23, and that, that pot has built up to the, the point I'm now 37 and, and have a pot. But I, I don't see how young developers can get that, that lump of capital to, get, to begin with. It's, you know, if, if you were looking to be a homeowner at, at, the, at a young age, you, you know, get involved with a help-to-buy scheme. But then you're, you're um, securing that, that money against uh, an existing property. Daniel Norman, did you want to make make a point on that? Yeah, so I mean, something that I've obviously now got a lot of experience in is the world of venture capital and um, investors in our business. So investment, not just on development finance, because having been on the banking side, like Daniel Joyce, I understand that you would need that minimum equity contribution going in on a project by project basis. I totally get that. And the world of banking has got a lot of regulation around it um, to ensure that we don't end up in the, the same mess that we've ended up in in the past. So actually, something like the, the government's future fund um, in the UK, where it will match investment into your business that a venture capitalist is bringing into a tech startup, into a business, they'll basically match the terms. Something like that coupled with mentorship is potentially an interesting solution where you've got, there's enough equity in the world. There's enough equity in property right now. There's people with money. There's a lot of people with experience as well. So if you're able to couple that equity as an investment in the business, along with someone's experience and oversight, and that money goes in, that could potentially be enough then to keep the likes of Close Brothers happy to make sure that there's enough experience around the table to allow those projects to move forwards. And once you've got those two, three projects under the way, underway or complete, um, then they become a credible borrower in their own right. Is there an argument for actually almost taking mentorship a, a whole company stage further with a, a volume developer taking an SME under their wing? You know, might be smaller projects that they can do. I mean, I know it's probably too much of an ideal world because the volume, we don't want to bash the volume boys just because none of them are on here. But I think as Boris Johnson 
said, although we don't know what he said or didn't say um, about most things, but about a, about a cartel and and the sort of, you know the big boys controlling that. But is there is there an opportunity almost to create more of an industry wide mentoring? So the industry is really pulling together. Do you think that's a possibility, or is that am I living in cloud cookie land thinking? that a major builder would take a young upstart under their arm when there's land to be fought for and houses to be built? You've got to think, though, what's in it for them? So in the world of tech, for example, JLL have got JLL Spark, their investment vehicle. Savills have got the same. Um, CBRE have got the same. They're making investments into tech companies because actually the, the upside is potentially you know, massive. In development, is a house builder investing their equity and their time into a smaller developer going to result in a return for them? Maybe, and maybe it's to do with land bank or talent or kind of like incubating talent for, to come into their business. But actually, I, I think it would be a challenge to see for them to be enough upside for them to justify dedicating resources to going down that route. Although I like the idea. There might be some some mileage in putting a few of the uh, more independently minded guys already within those organisations onto smaller developments, you know, giving them the opportunity to run smaller things from conception through planning to development and sales. Because the, the big boys aren't really interested in the, in the small sites, but it could be that they can develop their talent by putting them on, on, on the smaller jobs that you know, they've then got uh, backup in the main office for questions about planning and, you know, they can take their time to do it. That's an idea. So so in terms of, is it, is it a generic promotion of the house building industry right across the board that tells people, because as, as we all know, do it right and with the right attitude, it's a, it's a fantastic and profitable business to be in. How do we actually encourage more people, you know, almost almost in terms of the whole aesthetic of, of house building and what what you can do, what it can deliver, socially, environmentally, culturally. Do you think it needs a whole whole shift to make the house builder, you know, the neighbour's friend, not the not the big bad wolf, you know, coming in and uh, destroying their neighbourhood? Because there's still that culture, isn't there? I think that we'll see a ESG conscious generation who are keen to create communities or in a sustainable way, you know, with good architecture and with the right balance. And I think that that's definitely a shift in the mindset that's happening at the moment. And I feel like there'll definitely be an attention brought to house building, which is not just about profit. And I think if that view can be shifted from just the greedy property developer buying up everyone's back garden to actually being somebody who's creating a sustainable community where there's you know lots of good things to come out of it as well, then I feel like that's where somebody could really stand out. And Dan, Joyce, just going, going back to, which I, I think is fascinating, your Tomorrow's Developer program. I mean, presumably, as you go along, you'll, you'll learn so much, actually, won't you, from, from the developers themselves? Because there are, there are the obvious barriers that you, being in finance, you see all the time. But actually, there's a whole load more that you're hoping to draw out and then maybe help to solve those problems for them. Without doubt. After our first event... We took a survey and we obviously listened to those who, who were at the event and we sort of took some guidance about how they wanted the forum to move forward um, and the network to move forward and, and what was interesting to them. So our, our next event, which um, is uh, in March, um, we're actually doing in partnership with Savills and the primary focus is around securing land. 
we know that that is a barrier and we spoke about that quite a bit at the event but actually the sort of advice that that came from the event and the presentations was around getting in with planners and getting in with land agents again that is us as an organization basically exchanging our value with this next generation so that they can sort of get, get those contacts and connections so they can start breaking that barrier down. Well, I mean, planning's, planning's still a doddle, isn't it? It's, it's easy, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, in all, I mean, all seriousness, I think it was uh, from the SME report from Close Brothers Property Finance with the HBF and, and Travis Perkins. I think, again, planning was a significant issue, again, without opening a whole new podcast um, and, and having to bleep out a lot of language, no doubt, if you did get onto planning. But 94%, that's a huge number isn't it so the, the frustration must be that whatever you do even if you you know you you find the funding you've got great design ideas great new initiatives you still as an industry you're artificially deprived of your basic raw material which is permission land and i can't see that changing any any time soon is there is there a solution there or will it just be a frustration forever and a day i'd, I'd pay planet more we've had a pre-application planning advice in for seven months. It was registered, I chased and didn't get a response, I chased and didn't get a response, I chased was told that the girl dealing with was sick and had been for three months. It's it's still not, not been dealt with so we're having to put in a planning amendment without advice. I mean we think we know what we're doing but because different councils have a different approach to planning. It's not a, a centralised, uh, consistent thing. We are we are guessing, which costs us time. It costs us money. Ultimately, may delay us. But I suppose that makes. I mean, Dan Joyce. I mean, that that's what you have to be acutely aware of, isn't it? Because every other box can be ticked. Yeah. But you know, there comes a point where you you know these things are going to happen through absolutely no fault of your client and, and who you're lending to. So it, it requires an innate understanding of, of the processes and the problems that always invariably lie ahead. Yeah, and the problem is if, if the developers do not know what's going on, the chances we've got are, are very remote. In terms of our funding side of things, because we only lend where planning's in place, that sort of risk is taken away from us in terms of when we move the schemes forward. But I promise you this, the, the discussions I have with our developers and, and our portfolio is one that smacks of a lot of frustration, um, a lot of disappointment. The issues Charles has just brought up you know, is, is a starting point. Can we get these registered? Can we get them on the system? Can we get some advice? And until something changes from that perspective, um, it's going to be very difficult. Daniel Norman, is that, I mean, this this presumably where PropTech comes in. I mean, you, I mean there's certain things you you can't solve but do you see you know prop tech taken in the in the right way and a, a right understanding from the house building industry offers opportunities there certainly so one of the things that has happened with planning side of things and one of the problems is that it's dealt with on a local authority basis so gds which is the government digital services is actually really well regarded in the technology community they have the best software engineers anyone who's used gov.uk services like in over the last few years or companies house you'll see that the actual infrastructure is really good and they've really put a lot of time and effort and money into it but then you're looking at a planning portal and that's basically done on a local authorities website rather than on a government level. And it's using tech that was there from 10, 15, 20 years ago. 
And so I think the first thing here is actually a senior government level coming into this and standardising the planning portal for every planning application across all of the local authorities where Charles can log in and he can see the status of the site. He can see exactly what's going on. Everything's being logged. You don't need to pick up the phone and chase and then take up the time of the person answering the phone to look at the status. And that person then got more time to do the human elements and the human bits which are required. Then the second part of that is also the concept of more, which other countries are already doing, is the zoning, potential for zoning. So you know that if you're building in this area, it's classified as a certain zone where you know the stories you'll get. You'll know if there's any chance of getting any form of you know, ground floor retail or not, if it's pure residential, your use class, etc., where, yes, it's not going to be the design, the sign off on the final design, but it's going to give you some certainty and also the bank certainty around what could be built there. So um, to simplify the answer, I think I think technology will play a major role in this, as well as um, as well as some overruling um, changes, which I believe are coming up in the planning world. I think we've um, covered an amazing number of points. I think it just shows that all, all the different issues facing house building. But I'd just like to say, I think it's been a fantastic chat. It's been fascinating talking to you all and, and hearing your views. And I think the future of the industry is in great hands. There are barriers that will always be there, you know, be it from government and, and lots of other issues. But if, if we can all drive it forward together, there's a massive opportunity to change minds, recruit young talent and build great houses. So um, I'd just like to say a big thank you to Dan Joyce, Daniel Norman, Jonathan Kitchen and Charles Worthington. This has been episode two of the House Builders podcast from Close Brothers Property Finance and Showhouse Magazine, encouraging SMEs and the next generation. So thank you very much.